May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. You can be seated. There's a story that comes from church tradition. This is not in Scripture, but this is tradition about the Apostle John. And according to church tradition, John lived a very long time. And uh, when he was very old, his disciples would carry him into the church in Ephesus. And he, he didn't have much strength to utter many words, but he would always say the same thing during church gatherings. Little children love one another. And people in the church grew frustrated with the Apostle John. They wanted to hear something else. Here was a man who walked with Christ. And so they asked him, teacher, why do you always say this? And he replied simply because it's the Lord's command. And if we follow it, it is sufficient. It is sufficient for our life together. Little children love one another. I wonder what you would say if you had just a few words to say to the church. Apostle John, little children love one another. It's essential to our life together. And we do have to be reminded of this. We do have to be reminded of this because our love for one another can grow cold for various reasons. And we can drift away from this central command of Christ. And so we need motivation. We need fresh motivation, I think, sometimes to, to think again about what it means to love one another and to be motivated to love one another. And that's what John gives us in our epistle reading today. I invite you to turn back to that. If you have your bulletin, you can look at page 10, 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. I suppose John could have said, we'll go back and read what I've already written. You can find more things there. But here, uh, John gives us reasons to love one another or motivations to love, motives to love one another. And I find four things here that John speaks of. And so I want to talk about these, these four motives. First of all, the character of our God. The character of the God that we worship. He says, God is love. God is love. And God's being is love. Or God's being is love. And that's a wonderful thing to think about. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. But that would be kind of a scary prospect if you had a God who was all-powerful and all-knowing, but wasn't a God of love. God is love. His very nature is one of love. And so, John says that a person who knows this God who is love will be a loving person. Look at the beginning of this section. Beloved, let us love one another, verse 7, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. But the flip side, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. So a Christian is somebody who has been born of God. He mentions that in verse seven. Whoever loves has been born of God. That means that God's life has come into this person and given them new life, new birth. And God's life is a life of love. So, 
He says, whoever has been born of God and, and knows God is the person who loves. If God's life lives in you, his love will live in you. And so that's a kind of a very logical argument. If you know God, if you've been born of God, since God is love, his love will be in you. An apple seed produces apple trees. A child looks something like his or her mother or father. Life reproduces life. And John says God's life, God's nature is one of love and therefore his children are called to reflect something of that life in their life. So that's the first thing. The first motive is just think about who this God is that we worship. God is love. And then John reminds us of how God has demonstrated that he is love. How God has acted in time and space in history to reveal that he is love, that he is loving. He says in this, the love of God was made manifest or the love of God appeared or the love of God was made visible among us. That God sent his only son into this world that we might live through him. God sent his son to bring us God's life. And this is love. This is how we know God loves us. It showed up in this event that happened historically. God sent his son. And then he goes on and he says, not only did God send his son that we might have life, but here's how we can have life through him. Here's how we have life through him, through the sacrifice that God provided. Verse 10, this is love, not that we first loved God, but God loved us and sent his son to be. Here's a big theological word that we need to know. The propitiation. For our sin. The propitiation for our sin. In our liturgy, at the comfortable words, we say he is the propitiation for our sins. And not only ours, but the sins of the whole world. And that language comes from John in this letter. First John. Propitiation. It's an important thing to think about. Propitiation means this. It means to turn away wrath or righteous anger. Propitiation means to turn away wrath or righteous anger. And what John is saying here is at the cross of his son, Jesus Christ, God propitiated himself. God himself made a sacrifice that met his holiness, that met his just demands. This does not mean that we think of God as an angry father towards his son that does violence to his son at the cross. And then, and only then, does God reluctantly change his mind about us. That's not what the idea of propitiation or the doctrine of propitiation teaches. That's kind of a crude caricature of propitiation. And some people want to dismiss this idea of propitiation because of that caricature. No, the suffering at the cross is not something that happened external to God. God was in Christ reconciling himself to us. God was in Christ reconciling himself to us. And the motive all along for the cross from eternity was the love of God. Was the love of God. So the cross doesn't change God's mind. It reveals God's character. Which is holiness. Which is justice. He's got to deal with 
the, the great barrier of sin because of his holy nature, his holy character. But it also reveals the love of God that motivated God to make a way for us to be reconciled to him. So Leon Morris, a, a biblical scholar, in one of his books on the apostolic preaching of the cross, talks about propitiation and he says this, Propitiation speaks to two great realities. First, the reality and seriousness of the divine reaction against sin. This is how big a problem it is. Sin. How big a problem it is in light of God's justice and holiness and righteousness. So it speaks to that one reality of the great seriousness of the divine reaction against sin. But then it speaks also to the reality of of God's great love. God himself provides the gift that averts his righteous anger, his justice. So, friends, when we think about the love of God, we can look at the cross of Christ and we don't have to speculate. There may be times in our life where we wonder, is God really loving? Does God really love me? And in this culture, if people think about God and if they believe in God, the, the, the hope is, the speculation is that God must be a God of love, but there's no way to know anything certain about this God. And so the love of God for non-Christians is often an abstract and speculative and wispy sort of thing. But for us, brothers and sisters, as Christians, the love of God is an event that we can look back to and we can commune with even now the cross of Christ, the forgiving love of Christ. And so we don't have to speculate. God has made visible that he is a God of love at the cross of Christ. And if God loved us, this is John's rationale here. This is John's argument. If God loved us like this, with this sacrificial, self-giving, agape love, if God loved us like this, then we ought to love one another in a similar way. So we have the motivation which comes from just reflecting on who this God is that we worship. God is love in his character, in his being. Then we can reflect on what God has done for us to demonstrate his love at the cross. He acted in history. And then John tells us that our love for one another is a great witness for God. A witness for God. In verse 12, he says this. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen God. God is invisible. And this is a problem. This is a barrier for some people when it comes to believing in God. No one has ever seen God. And we are taught in this culture to only believe things that we can see or test or verify empirically. I was talking to somebody just recently about a friend that we have, a mutual friend who has struggled with faith for many years. I asked how he's doing and she said he just can't come to believe because he wants something concrete. And so he didn't say exactly visible, but he wanted something he could see. He wanted something concrete. No one has ever seen God. But then John makes this remarkable statement. Then then what's the witness of God today in this world? How can we know what God is like? Well, he says this. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. How is God's love made visible right now? 
John makes this remarkable statement. It is through our love for one another than something of the presence of God and the love of God that abides in us. In this skeptical and cynical age, how are people going to believe in the reality of God? It is, John is saying, through our love for one another. People come into the church and they witness a love that crosses boundaries. A love that can't be explained rationally. A love that forgives enemies. A love that crosses political boundaries and class boundaries and racial boundaries. And this is not what you find in the world, not in the world today that divides us up. And that's a testimony to the divine love of God. And so John says, when we love like this, when we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. And that is a great witness. That is a great witness to this world. When he says perfected, by the way, he doesn't mean we love in a flawless way. The word perfected there comes from a Greek word telos, which which we get telescope from, which means kind of looking towards through something to an end. And, And what he's talking about is this is the way love is. This is the way love moves toward the goal that God intended it to have the goal, the purpose. And part of the purpose of the love of God is that we might love one another. Because God's love, this agape love, this love that is at the heart of who God is, is a dynamic thing that's in motion. It, it, it flows from Him to us and then through us to others. And that's how God intended it to be. So that His love might expand throughout His creation and bring Him glory as it does so. God's love is a dynamic thing. It's flowing. It's in motion. On Monday, I took... My little guy, Sam, two-year-old Sam, Monday was a, a beautiful day. Remember how beautiful Monday was? And it's my day off. And so I said to Josie, I said, let's go to a park and let's take Sam to the park and let's take our obnoxious dog, Sonny, with us because he needs to get out and get some exercise. And so we went to a state park that had a creek. And I thought this is a great day to introduce Sam to wading in creeks because every little boy needs to wade in creeks and this will be fun. And that's what we did. And as we're, you know, he did have fun. He kept saying, Dad, this is fun. This is fun. <laughs> a new way to have fun, he discovered, as he waded in creeks and threw rocks. And then we sat down and, and tried to make up a little dam, you know, to block the flow of the water. And you know how it is. You put a, a rock in the flowing stream and the water just goes whoop right around it. It takes a lot of rock. It takes a lot of sticks. It goes under the sticks and through the sticks and and it's very hard to build a dam with just rocks and sticks in a flowing stream. And I thought about that and that as a picture of the restless love of God, the flowing love of God. God's love is in motion. It's dynamic. It finds a way. It must find a way to express itself. And when the stream stops flowing, what happens? The water stagnates. And when water stagnates, it becomes a, a host for parasites and bacteria. It's no longer life-giving. And so that's an image for us. God's love is given to us to flow out of us towards one another in our families, in our neighborhoods, and in our communities, and ultimately to the world. But when that stops, when we try to keep this love to ourselves, or when we ourselves are not refreshed in the love of God, then the church can become a place that's not life-giving. Thank God we're not in that place right now. And God preserve us. But... Those of us who've been in the church long enough know that that can happen in the church 
where we stop loving one another. And uh, there's gossip and there's infighting and there's friction and there's disunity and the church is no longer life-giving. It stagnates. When we neglect sharing or expressing the love of God. That can happen. But John reminds us, no, this is, this is how God abides in you. This is how God's love is life-giving for you and for the recipient as it flows through us to others. The invisible God shows up as we love one another. And that's life-giving. And then finally, John tells us that our love for one another is a test. It's a test. So it reflects the nature of God. It reflects the action of God. It is a witness to God. And then it is a test to the confession of our faith. It tests the genuineness of our faith. John writes this letter one of the reasons John, the Apostle John, wrote this letter is to assure these young Christians that they are right with God because there was a false teaching that had come into this community. And we don't know exactly what they said, the false teachers, but it was raising doubt in the minds of these Christians whether or not they were right with God. And so John is wanting to affirm their faith. And John is wanting to give them assurance through this epistle that they are Right with God. And he says, um, verse 15, whoever confesses that Jesus is the son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And, and he says, as you know, the love of God, if you know God in his love, then you don't have to be afraid of the judgment of God because perfect love casts out fear. So he's writing this letter to encourage them and to assure them in their in their faith. But then he does say this, he says, But if you say you love God and you hate your brother, then your confession's not true. Maybe these false teachers were living in such a way that it was difficult to see the love of God in their life. And John says, if you say that you love God, but you're hating your brother, the love of God does not live in you. The confession is not genuine. It's not true. And so it's a test of our faith. It's not that we love God in order or love others in order to prove to God that we are his and that he ought to love us because we're lovable. It's not as if John is saying you have to earn God's favor. That's not the gospel. No, we love because he first loved us. But our love is the fruit of our faith. The love that we have for one another is evidence of a life that's been changed by the love of God. And so these are the motives that John gives us to love one another. And so now, how do we put this into practice as we come to a close? How do we put these things into practice? Because that's what John is getting at here. This is not a theoretical discussion. He wants them to love each other in this community. And from this place of love in this community, this love is to flow out to other people as well. And so how do we put this into practice? Well, I think one thing is, first of all, we need to realize where it starts. We love because he first loved us. I find that when in my life I am developing attitudes, when stagnation begins to happen in my soul, and I'm beginning to develop attitudes that are unloving, irritability, resentment, those sorts of attitudes that are not life-giving, then I need to go back and meditate on the love of God for me. I need to go back and meditate on the love of Christ. I need to fellowship with Christ. 
I need to have afresh His love stirred up in my heart through prayer and through worship. Okay, so, so that's the starting place. To, to grow in love, we always have to go back to the love that God has shown for us and commune with Christ. And as we do that, His love will grow in our life. But then we need to think about where God has placed us and the people around us. We need to start where we're at and ask, how can I grow in showing love to those around me in my family? Here's an important verse for me that I don't live out perfectly. Husbands, love your wife. How? This agape love as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Sacrificial love. So for husbands, we can just say, how can I show sacrificial love to my wife and grow in that? Wives, Paul says in Ephesians, he goes on and says, respect your husbands. This is one of the primary ways that wives can show their love of, towards their husband is by showing respect to their husband. Children, obey your parents. Honor your parents. This is a way of showing love to them. We're called to walk in love in practical ways. How can I show honor and obedience to my parents so that our family grows in this kind of love for one another? And beyond the home, of course, we're called to love one another in the family of God. And that calls us to build relationships in the family of God. This is the strength of this church is the love that we have for one another. We can grow in this love. To love one another in the body of Christ means saying, I'm sorry when we've done something wrong or hurtful. Loving one another in the body of Christ saying, is, is saying, I forgive you. It's moving towards reconciliation where there's been division and disunity. It's going to a person who you've offended or who has something against you and, and saying, no, this is not right. In the body of Christ, we need to be reconciled. This is what love looks like. And, and you could say, well, this person has hurt me. I have a legitimate right to hold something against them. No. Not as a Christian, you don't have a legitimate right to hold anything against somebody who's hurt you. Because as a Christian, God in Christ forgave us when we were enemies, when we were sinners. He forgave us like this. We are to forgive as He is forgiven, as He's forgiven us. Sometimes that's a process that can be very difficult, but this is the call of the gospel. We love one another as we meet each other's practical needs. And again, this is the strength of the church. And I get to see it. I have a front row seat week after week to see the way the body of Christ here at Church of the Resurrection ministers to one another. By praying for one another, by sending cards, by hospitality, by sharing the gifts that God has given you to help those who are less fortunate. It's a wonderful thing that we can continue to grow in. It's something that we value and that we have to continue to value. But let's not just keep this love to ourselves. Let's let it flow out into the world, into the community, into our workplaces, into our schools. Let's ask the Lord how we can show this love where he's placed us in the world. Because the world is desperate for this kind of love. The world doesn't know that it needs this kind of agape love. What's the old song? Looking for love in all the wrong places. The world is looking for love in all the wrong places. But there's an emptiness there. And there are a lot of lonely, hurting people 
who for whatever reason look at the church and think that's not where I'm going to find love. We need to prove them wrong. There was a study that came out by the Cigna um, group, Cigna Insurance Group, Health Insurance Group. This week, I think it came out, I heard a program about it this week at any rate. They did a study on loneliness in the United States. They found that over 50% of Americans say that they're lonely. And, And by lonely, they don't mean just a fleeting kind of feeling of being alone, but like a chronic, the way they describe it, a chronic ache to be connected to another person. Over 50%. And the interesting thing about this study is they found that the the people who scored the most lonely were the youngest people in this survey, the youngest teenagers, known as the I-generation, the generation that grew up with the iPhone. The most connected in terms of social media but not connected face-to-face. And they scored the highest on this loneliness scale. Friends, we have an opportunity as a church, if we will look for opportunities to show the love of Christ outside of these walls. And we need to pray that God would give us ways to connect the community that He's planted us in right here in West County to connect with people who are lonely and to invite them into this kingdom of God this kingdom where God is love. So let's pray that God would rekindle our own sense of his love for us so that that could flow out to others this week. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts and in our minds and in this community? I thank you so much for the love that's revealed in this place among your people here. And... um, That is a work of your spirit. And so we give you praise for that. But I do pray that we would all grow in this love and 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 think of of loving people or showing care uh, to people that we mainly normally don't uh, interact with. So that this love could grow and expand and strengthen us. And also that this might flow from our lives and from this church into our, into our world. Teach us how to love as you loved us. Lord Jesus, amen. Amen.